What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. Well, the Chancellor of the Exchequer has promised to bolster the finance industry's competitive edge for decades to come today in his Mansion House speech. It's the latest move by the government to champion a sector that was largely ignored during the pandemic and uh, Brexit. Well, Rishi Sunak outlined an ambitious vision and a plan to make, quotes, this country the world's most advanced and exciting financial services hub for decades to come, creating prosperity at home and projecting our values abroad. Well, the city lost its crown this year as the top place in Europe to buy and sell shares and the bloc is pressing firms to shift more trading and senior deal makers to EU locations. While Sunak said that Britain wouldn't dilute its regulatory standards for financial services, his comments suggest that the city will increasingly look for business outside of the EU bloc. Well, alongside the disappointments over coordinating financial services, Northern Ireland is at the centre of the ongoing row between Brussels and London. This one is over, of course, post-Brexit trade arrangements. There's a temporary truce in the so-called sausage wars over what food can be transported between Great Britain and the province, but the protocol issue is far from resolved. At the same time, the political consequences have already swept away two successive leaders of Northern Ireland's largest political party, the DUP. And this week, as the third one, Geoffrey Donaldson, was ratified as leader, one key DUP assembly member announced he was leaving the party. Well, the nationalist community has largely stood on the sidelines while all this was happening. But joining us now is Colm Eastwood, MP for Foyle and leader of the SDLP. Colm, thanks for being with us. Very good morning to you. Um, what do you make uh, of the turmoil that's going on inside the DUP at the moment? Uh, well, it all goes back to Brexit. Of course, the DUP uh, supported Brexit against their own interests and against the interests of the people of Northern Ireland. And then they kind of backed the hard right of the Tory party uh, when they had an opportunity to support Theresa May's deal, which would have been much better, I think, for all of us. Uh, they, they, they didn't do it, and they pursued a very hard Brexit, um, all the while not realising that a hard Brexit uh, for Britain meant that there had to be borders somewhere. So uh, it was totally you know, unpalatable that those borders would be uh, in place on the island of Ireland, and that's why we've now got... Uh, I think it's called the protocol. Um, uh, now the DUP are rating against the protocol, um, which basically means we have a, a, a border in the Irish Sea, and that, that's a direct consequence of the stand that the DUP and Boris Johnson and others took on Brexit. Okay, so they made their bed uh, and they can lie at it essentially. But what is the way out? of the protocol problem. I mean, it is a problem for Northern Ireland, for the UK, for the EU. Um, it's clearly a very sore point for the unionist community. Yes. Well, my view is Brexit's a problem, actually. Um, but 
if we want to reduce checks, there's a very simple way of doing it. Um, and it's a Swiss-style SPS veterinary agreement between the UK and the European Union. And that, that means there'll be very, very few checks um, uh, you know, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, the difficulty is Boris Johnson doesn't want to do that because it, it offends his vision uh, of Brexit. Um, but he has to choose at some point. Uh, does he want to uh, recognise the unionist concerns in Northern Ireland or does he want to uh, reduce um, regulation uh, on goods uh, made in, in, in Britain? And that really is the choice that he has to make. And it is a, a circle that hasn't been able to be squared uh, the whole way through this Brexit debate. And that's right at the core uh, of the problems that we face today. But the, but the point is in this column that, you know, it, it may be, as you say, that these are unionist concerns that maybe make it difficult, but they do reflect the concerns of a very large chunk of the Northern Ireland people. Isn't there a moment where they, those concerns have to be addressed? They have to be brought in. They have to be embraced effectively. No, absolutely. You know, and, and that's why I didn't support Brexit. And that's why I didn't want to see a hard Brexit. You know, the, the UK as a whole could have stayed in the customs union and single market. Uh, the British government chose not to do that. And that's uh, why we have this protocol. Uh, if we want to reduce checks, it's the, it's the SPS Swiss style agreement that does that. There really is no other way of doing it. You can't have uh, everything. You know, you can't uh, reduce kind of uh, the regulatory burden on farmers in Britain and also uh, you know, have no checks in the in the IEC. It's just not possible. So there has to be a recognition of of the facts of life around all of that, and it's really up to the UK government if they want to address the concerns of the unionist population, and they are real and understandable. Um, they should uh, they should do that kind of agreement with the European Union. It's really over to uh, Lord Frost and Boris Johnson now to decide if that's the path they want to take. If the DUP implodes, though. That isn't obviously going to help the peace process. Yeah, yeah, I have no interest in anybody imploding, actually, and, and I think what we need is stability. Uh, the best way to get stability is for people to recognise, you know, the real issues and deal with them and work through them without creating, you know, uh, any more instability and not having protests in the streets and all of that. I just think there hasn't been enough focus on the practical implications of all of this and how we resolve them. Uh, the EU are very clear; they will do. Uh, an SPS agreement, uh, a Swiss-style one, which would be all-encompassing, uh, reduce checks right down to about 10% uh, you know, of what they are right now. So and I think that's that's the space we have to get into. We have to stop the big talk of constitutions and flag-waving, and we have to sit down and work through those issues. I don't want the DUP to implode, uh, and I want stability in Northern Ireland, and we're prepared to work with the DUP and anybody else to try to achieve that. But the Swiss deal that you're talking about, it's its about farmers, basically. It wouldn't actually solve everything. There are a wide range of issues about what food and what and what other goods can be taken across the Irish Sea. Uh, it, it's a lot more complicated than just one deal would deal with. It is, but that would reduce about 80% of the checks, possibly 90% of the checks um, that we're seeing right now uh, you know, in the Irish Sea. And we'll see more of that once the... Uh, the chilled meats um, extension has ended at the end of, uh, of September. But we saw yesterday the EU unilaterally extending uh, that grace period. We also saw them dealing with the medicines issue, with the guide dogs issue. So the EU seemed to be prepared 
uh, to move and to work within the framework of the protocol. Um, but on the one hand, you know, but the, the British government's response seems to be we want to scrap the protocol, and then on the other hand, we want to find the best way to work through the protocol. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't add up, and I think the British government have to make a decision. Um, do they want to work through the framework of the protocol, find the solutions that the unionist community are concerned about, or do they want to continue this kind of phony war uh, with the EU? Okay. Um, are you concerned um, or worried about the Good Friday Accord going forwards um, if perhaps within the unionist community more hardline figures emerge? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we always have to be concerned about that. Um, but this all comes back to Brexit. You know, we warned at the time that Brexit would have a destabilising impact on the Good Friday Agreement and the peace process. Uh, but we just always have to remember um, that those of us who are connected to peaceful means, which is the vast, vast majority of people, uh, I'm an Irish nationalist, I want to see a united Ireland, but I don't want to see that in any other way uh, other than through the democratic process. So if I want to see you know, constitutional change, I have to convince people that that's a good idea and people have to vote for it. So there is no threat to the union other, you know, other than a democratic threat. And I would just uh, implore my unionist friends to think about that because um, if they keep supporting uh, hardline positions around Brexit and other uh, positions, uh, I think they're actually undermining their own case for the union. Colm, let me move you on to a very different subject, which is climate change, and one I know that you are passionate about. I mean, the evidence suggests that Northern Ireland is going to be one of the worst affected parts of the UK by climate change. Is that right? Yes, and I also think you know we, we have to look at this in a very global way. It seems very obvious to say that, but um, I don't think there's any local way of looking at the issue of climate change and what is really a climate emergency uh, at the minute. And uh, I, I just think if we don't act uh, very strongly, very quickly, very urgently, uh, we're not going to be able to deal with this issue in the way that we have to. I think sort of our generation has been left a terrible legacy. We have to make sure we don't leave a worse legacy for generations to come. And I have a private member still going through Westminster. The government can support it uh, if they want. But it, it really will be calling for a much more radical uh, approach to this issue, uh, bringing the date forward as to when we can reach uh, net zero uh, carbon emissions, uh, looking at ways of uh, putting a, a corporate levy on big companies who refuse to, 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 to act around climate change, and that, using that money then to focus on creating uh, green jobs. I think yeah, well, there's a massive me- opportunity in that. Sorry, um, what the, the green corporate levy? I'm interested in that. Exactly, what is that? The, the corporate levy. Well, we're working through the details uh, at the minute, and we will speak to business uh, about it. But basically, what we need to recognise is that all of us have a responsibility, and you know, big polluters have a big responsibility. And if they continue to pollute in a big way, then I think that needs to be taxed uh, to encourage them not to. Uh, but I also think that. That, that money needs to be used uh, and ring fence to help create uh, uh, new green jobs. Actually, in Northern Ireland, we have a huge opportunity because of the protocol. We don't talk about this enough, but we have an opportunity to trade into the European market, into the British market, and highly regulated green type jobs are the kind of thing that could be uh, the kind of jobs that could be uh, created. And uh, using the, the, the opportunities of the protocol, I think we could uh, have a big advantage there economically, actually. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? 
With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. But let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And uh, we've uh, heard from the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, Caroline. Yes, indeed. He's been speaking to Bloomberg this morning, uh, talking about the tapering of the furlough scheme being very reasonable, with businesses paying just 10% of the furlough scheme uh, payouts from today. We've also had new figures out this morning showing actually that the lowest number of people now on the furlough scheme since the pandemic began, so 2.4 million people at the end of May. This comes, though, as the Labour MP Jeff Smith questioned whether it was fair to ask businesses such as Nike clubs to start contributing 10% towards the salaries of furloughed staff, given that they are still not allowed to reopen nightclubs. Yeah, because of course we are still in some measures of lockdown. But in terms of the furlough, very interestingly, young workers are the most likely to be put on furlough, uh, but it's older people have the highest chance of being still fully reliant on wage subsidies and indeed being made unemployed. That's in a new report by the Resolution Foundation. The furlough scheme, of course, does begin winding down today. It's the end completely on September the 30th. That report, though, interestingly, also highlighted that the richest fifth of families in the UK are almost four times as likely to have seen their savings rise over the course of the crisis. And lastly, Nissan has announced this morning that it will create a new £1 billion hub for making electric vehicles in Britain. It's part of the car makers' revamp of its electric car strategy. Nissan will spend as much as £423 million to produce a new all-electric crossover vehicle in their Sunderland plant. Indeed, their managing director of that plant was speaking to us earlier on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. Also, Envision, which supplies batteries to Nissan, will invest four hundred. £150 million in a state-of-the-art powertrain factory. Now, let's talk about schools. Efforts to level up funding for education have resulted in cuts to the money going to the most deprived schools. That's according to the National Audit Office. The spending watchdog said since the introduction of a national funding formula for England, almost 60% of the most deprived fifth of schools have seen a real terms reduction in government funding since 2017-18, Caroline. Yeah, this, of course, as clamours grow to end bubbles and self-isolation for school children after it was revealed on Tuesday that some 375,000 pupils were in self-isolation in the week of the 24th of March uh, of June. rather. So to discuss all of this, joining us now is Jerry Glazier, who is a member of the National Education Union on their executive board and also a teacher himself. Jerry, thanks for being back on the programme with us. So those NAO figures, I mean, they sort of say it all if you pass through it there is relative redistribution of resources to schools in the better off areas that's the absolute opposite of the what the government has said they want to do uh, absolutely the case caroline uh, and that's in the context of schools having inadequate resources generally 
anyway. And uh, those resources have been stretched during the course of the pandemic. So it's really very important that schools have a fair distribution of resources, but they have adequate resources to meet the needs of all their kids. But Jerry, what about the catch-up spending? There was a lot of debate about this. Indeed, uh, the government's chief advisor on all this resigned because there wasn't enough, in his view, uh, a very, very small amount, relatively speaking. Is any of this catch-up spending appearing as yet? Some of it's appearing, but Sir Kevin Collins was absolutely right in his judgment about what schools needed. It was 10 times more than the government's currently committed. And we're very disappointed about that because it's crucially important that schools are able to have the resources to meet the specific needs of their children. And children's needs are different and individual schools have different cohorts of children. Uh, and, you know, you've, as we just discussed, uh, uh, areas of greater deprivation, then the resources need to be greater to reflect those needs. And we've seen the unequal access to education through COVID, particularly in relation to technology and the environment in which kids were uh, learning online uh, in respect of their home circumstances. Hmm. I mean, one of the crucial issues is actually just even having the children in school, though, uh, for them to benefit from from in-person uh, teaching. Bubbles, a lot of discussion around whether bubbles and self-isolation should end. Almost 50 Tory MPs have written to Boris Johnson saying that that has to happen from the 19th of July, that it's disproportionate, unsustainable. But what's the perspective from teachers? Well, I think it's very clear that... Um this new wave of the virus has uh, quite uh, rapidly uh, increased and certainly from where I can see things specifically in an area like Essex I've seen over the last four weeks the number of infections in schools have doubled week on week and uh, you can see where that will take us by the end of, uh, of, of term um, but the, the, the issue about bubbles I, I want to make this point because it's really important that the schools are following the guidance and expectations of the Department for Education and they are doing what the government is saying they should do where there are outbreaks in schools they are uh, asking the kids to isolate. So um, clearly, if the government is going to change its policy, then it needs to be clear with, with education professionals why it's doing that, what the science and data is behind that. But what we are saying is that if the bubbles are going to end, then there does really need to be a redoubling of the use of masks in schools, particularly in secondary schools, uh, uh, probably will require some more regular testing of students to ensure we're on top of the, uh, the level of infections. And today we're saying again that ventilation, ventilation is really a very, very important aspect of this. And we're concerned that uh, it, when schools return in September and as the weather uh, becomes uh, uh, less clement, then uh, enabling effective ventilation is going to be very crucial if we're going to keep infection levels down. Jerry, you're, you're, you're a frontline teacher. You're someone who does teach uh, in the classroom. What's your experience of this? I mean, when you go into a classroom, are, are people, are students wearing masks? Is there ventilation? Is it being handled in an effective and, and healthy way? I think it's it's variable in, in across the across the systems. Some schools are more assiduous than others. Some schools are more able to deliver ventilation. And there were problems early on about uh, uh, windows in schools not opening far enough. Some of that was to do with safety reasons in in, in more you know buildings which have got more than one floor. Um, but I think it's crucial that uh, t schools and head teachers in schools understand what's going to be expected of them from September, that they are able to plan for it, um, 
to enable it to be put in place in September, but they're also supported enable, enabling the delivery of uh, effective education on whatever the government says has to happen. But we are very clear, I'll repeat it, that there does need to be a return to masks from our, from our, uh, our perspective. There, need, there probably does need to be more testing and there does need to be a very serious look generally at ensuring that schools are properly ventilated and maybe have some equipment in schools to ensure the CO2 levels uh, are kept at the um, appropriate low level. Um, are schools going to suffer the same sort of thing as, as uh, there is concern around for the NHS, i.e. an exodus of talent? The teaching union, the NASUWT, so um, you know, a separate union to yours, but they've talked about the workload this year being a nightmare. Um, are teachers going to walk um, in larger numbers than usual because of the pressure? Well, the, the issue of workload, I think it's universally acknowledged across the profession that the workload is still far too high. And the impact of that is that it does cause people to leave the profession because it's not sustainable. And we've, we've been concerned, frankly, for decades about how long new entrants to the profession stay in the profession, citing excessive workload as the reason why they're, they're leaving after three, four or five years, which is an enormous waste. So we will keep redoubling um, our request to government to have a look at workload because it has to be proportionate and sustainable. Otherwise, the attrition rates will increase. Uh, I think there are some anecdotal evidence that teachers who stayed on during the, uh, the, the COVID pandemic, who probably would have retired, will probably retire um, at the end of this um, academic year. So that might have a problem. And you, you couple that with the still inadequate recruitment strategy of government to ensure there's a proper supply of new teachers, then I think there will be some problems in parts of the country in having enough teachers and support workers in place. And that will be absolutely to the detriment of the kids in schools. Jerry, I'm interested in your personal experience because you, you've been teaching throughout this or been trying to teach. Do you feel that you personally have been able to deliver a good service as a teacher, that you've been able to educate the kids as you would want to, that the whole thing has worked in any way for you? Well, it's been variable, hasn't it? And I can talk more generally apart from my own personal experiences. I think teachers have done their utmost, Roger, and that's been important to re-emphasize that, to provide a service where practically possible. They've been plagued by technological problems. It took a while to get systems up and running, which is understandable. They were, we've been very frustrated as a profession that there hasn't been the access and there wasn't the access early enough of technology, and it took right towards the end of this um, pandemic before uh, in respect of online learning that all kids got an equal access to technology and there's probably still some gaps so that is frustrating um, but it's had an enormous impact on teachers I mean, universally my colleagues are telling me that frankly they're absolutely knackered They've, they've been doing so much for so long uh, with, with, with the 15, 16 months of the pandemic that they desperately need uh, a break and the, the summer holidays can't come too soon. But they have been trying their utmost to ensure that kids have not suffered. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.